Welcome to episode 10 of MD Wannabes, hosted by M3's Raman Needy. The Halloween Special. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of MD Wannabes, a podcast created by seven med students to discuss the realities of med school. This is our 10th episode and it's going to be a Halloween special where we talk about the fears and scary parts of medicine. We also have a guest, Dr. Corentager, the plastic surgery chair at KUMC and society director at our medical school. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, let's see, I've been a clinical surgeon for probably 30 years. It's sort of scary, you know, speaking of scary things, it's sort of scary how quickly that time has gone. Originally from Canada, so have uh, sort of a little bit of an accent that will still be picked up every so often. Um, Trained at the University of Toronto, and I've been at KU now for about 20 years. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) It it is. (laughs) So before we kind of get um, started with some serious topics, I actually prepared some Halloween jokes for you all. Um, What do you get when you cross a vampire with a teacher? A lot of blood tests. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. I just have have one more. I just have one more. Not in the outline, you (laughs) do. So, um, did you hear about the skeleton that dropped out of medical school? He just didn't have the stomach for it. Oh. I don't know if stand-up comedy is your next career. (laughs) Okay, Okay, this is a disaster, so let's just transition to something else. I think um, one thing we wanted to talk about with you was actually something you once told us about fear and medicine. Because I think for a lot of medical students, they have a lot of fears with, um, am I going to pass exams? Am I going to learn the medical knowledge? Am I going to match into a residency? But you also mentioned that sometimes even attendings can have a little bit of fear. And especially having that fear can be beneficial for having a good um, patient relationship and even providing better care to the patient. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And um, one of the things that I think I've um, learned over the years is that it's not only it it's fear, but it's also sort of a willingness to put yourself out there, which is sort of scary. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so the best way, we, we know in general that the best way to learn is by making people feel a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. We know that um, one of the things that you guys know, because we always talked about this during our PBLs, that I was always saying, okay, commit yourself. And if you're, if you commit yourself, that's sort of scary because you know you you can be wrong. Um, the beauty of med school is that you can be wrong and you're not going to kill anybody. <laughs> the part that gets scary as you go into residency and then when you're in practice is that you know you you've got to take these risks not only from for learning but also just for patient care because we don't know we don't always know what the right answer is and sometimes you've got to take a leap of faith and it and it is it is nerve-wracking it is scary um but that's also you know that's that's part of the allure of medicine the stuff that we're doing is high stakes Mm -hmm. and you know, when you make the right diagnosis, if I do an operation that was tricky and then everything really works out well, it's like, it's a great feeling. So, you know, you've got 
the fear, but you also have great reward as well. So I was kind of wondering, what kind of fears does an attending have who's um, many years into their practice? So I don't know that the fears are necessarily that different really? than you have at other times. So if I think of myself, um, you know, you can sort of break the fears up into, in for me, into sort of big groups. Um, one group of fear, I think, as a surgeon, something that I always talk to the patients about, I tell them this is a partnership and we each have to do our part and we have to work together so you've got to create a relationship with that patient so you know it's anxiety provoking to know how you're going to do it and sometimes it works really smoothly and seamlessly but then other times you know it doesn't work as well and you know you get anxious you get nervous you get scared if it's not if, if you don't have that, because then, you know, you're not quite sure, is this patient going to do the things that I'm asking them to do? Are they going to, if something goes wrong, if something isn't perfect, um, how's that going to work out? The other kind of fears, um, there are sort of spur of the moment fears. Uh, I can tell you about a, you know, a case that I did not too long ago. Uh, where it was a redo of a cosmetic surgery from many years before that had been done by somebody else. And as I was dissecting along, you know, you get into some bleeding. And I know anatomically that there are some pretty darn big vessels right around where I'm working. And then I'm, you know, there's a sudden, there's, there's some fear, there's an adrenaline surge as you're trying to go, okay, what could this be? How am I gonna deal with this? Because if I don't deal with it, this person isn't getting off the operating table. So, you know, you've got those sort of um, clinical fears and the same thing, you know, could hold true. It doesn't matter whether you're making a diagnosis in a primary care office or, or you know, uh, as an ED doc or, you know, inpatients. You know, it's, it's scary because once you get out into practice, you don't have somebody looking over your shoulder and saying to you, uh, ooh, don't, don't do that, that's gonna cause problems, or you better think about that again. You know, you're making a decision, you're moving forward. So, you know, there's a lot of things that are potentially scary, but they're great rewards. I guess like my question is, is when you see a student like visibly afraid of what they're going to do, how do you help that student like get those fears away? Maybe just like with even presenting, because I think sometimes that can be really intimidating. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of the time for students, it's it's a fear of failure. <laughs> and, <Yep>. you know, <laughs> right, because you're used to um, getting into medical school. Right, everything that you've done has been okay. I've got to get, I've got to pass this class, get a certain grade, and then I can put it behind me and I can move on. The difference when you get into medical school is that this is stuff you're going to be using for the rest of your professional life. So when I see somebody who's afraid or who's who's clearly 
overly anxious because again I think that it's you learn most effectively if you're a little uncomfortable but the person who is overly what I generally like to do um, take them aside sometimes it's going to be at that moment sometimes it's going to be you know another time so take them aside try to define what the fears where's that fear coming from you know it, this paralyzing fear that you know I'll sometimes see at times it will be something that's happened to them in the past they may say well you know I was on another rotation and they like yelled at me and berated me in front of everyone so I like I never want to go through that again um, sometimes it's just I don't I'm used to always knowing what the right answer is I'm, I just don't know I'm not sure so I'm really scared that I'm gonna give the wrong answer so you're gonna handle it in different ways um, but I think what's important is to help everyone students residents understand that you know fear is normal and I do think that it it helps us avoid making big mistakes right it makes you sort of step back a little bit think about things before you you do them mm-hmm. um, so I think that that's a that's the way I would approach it has like the culture and medical education changed from when you were in med school versus like now oh god yes <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's changed dramatically um, and I think overall it's changed dramatically for the better mm-hmm. um, certainly within the you know and I can speak more to the surgical world but you know I remember very distinctly you know talking about fear I was um, an intern at a hospital um, I said an intern or what we call our clinical clerkship, which is our fourth year then. Um, but I remember really distinctly being on a neurosurgery service. Yeah. And the head of neurosurgery, uh, it was towards the end of the academic year. So the residents were just getting ready to graduate and move on. And I saw one of the attendings just destroy a chief resident in front of everyone really someone that senior and it was all about you know it it was about power and it was also about sort of a belief at that time which I think is less prevalent now of you know I suffered therefore you shall suffer and that's the best way for you to learn you've got to be tough so I think that we've learned a lot and grown a lot since those days we know that that's not the right way to teach that it's that tearing somebody down is not going to make them a better surgeon or a better physician um so i think it i think it has changed a lot Mm -hmm. um you know speaking of like our med school and fear uh when you know I remember going through medical school even though it was many 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 years ago um, you know I remember being you know really terrified before some exams you know like there were some that you know I'd feel good about but you know your whole life seemed as though it was all impacted by how you're gonna do on this one exam and how good your memory was there's no like safety nets or anything there were no safety nets there it just did not feel like there were any safety nets 
So there was so there was definitely that, um, and and I don't think it's the right way to learn. Um, we felt very, I think we felt a little more alone. You know, one of the things that we always emphasize, certainly at KU, is that you're not alone, that, you know, you've got colleagues that you can uh, rely on, you've got your classmates, you've got, you know, when you're, um, as you move along, you'll have other people, you know, whether it be in nursing or School of Health Professions, you know, you've got other people that you can lean on. And I think that helps alleviate a lot of the fear because it means that as the physician, you don't have to feel that you have to know and have to be perfect at everything. Yeah, that's a good point. I think maybe transitioning to something, um, I guess, a little bit more lighthearted since we talk about so many scary things. Are you all uh, planning on going trick-or-treating this year? Well, you know, actually this year I will be away. I'm going to be at the um, uh, our, our National Plastic Surgery Society meeting in Atlanta. Oh, wow. So I don't really know what Is they're going to have. Is dressing up as a costume at the conference? I don't know whether people will be dressing up there. Um, you know, you... you I suspect not. <laughs> People might just be changing faces every day. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, our specialty still is a fairly staid and conservative group. But you know what? Even my family's going to be missing it. My, our, um, our older son, well, it's Sunday night, isn't it? Yeah. So he'll just be getting back from a hockey tournament in mm-hmm. Oklahoma City. So he's a teenager, so he'll probably just go straight to bed. And the other one is sort of planning to do a little bit. He, he's been discussing different costume options. What is he thinking? Um, you know, he's basically 13. So he's sort of at that tweeny sort of age. Oh, yeah. There's that age where you think you're too cool for Halloween. And then you hit like 18 and then you start doing it again and dressing up. And, Absolutely. And you miss going trick-or-treating because now you're too old to go yeah. to your neighbor's doors and ask for candy. Actually, I remember some of the best Halloween parties that I went to were during med school. Really? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of... So those were in the days of um, John Belushi and... Uh, a lot of the early Saturday Night Live, and we did a lot of, you know, toga parties were big, so that was one costume that we all had. Um, One of my favorite costumes ever, you didn't ask this, but I can tell you anyway, (laughs) one of my favorite costumes ever that I did was um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Really? Yes. That was, that, that was an easy costume so that was the other thing it had to be easy because i wasn't you know going to spend a lot of time creating it how'd you do the hunchback part oh that was a piece of cake you take some (laughs) you take a pillow and you take some tape (laughs) and you just you just tape that on and then you take a blanket i you know i remember getting a blanket from i don't know probably like a thrift shop or something Mm -hmm. cutting a hole out of it and making a giant poncho there you go You, you cut a a uh, ping pong ball in half uh-huh. and then you draw and you make it into an eyeball and then you stick it over your own eyeball oh <laughs> then how would you see well you well, still had you still had eye. one. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> did anyone ever dress up as like a doctor 
I feel um, like those people should not be allowed, like, into the money. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I'm sure there probably were, and you just sort of ignored them. Okay, perfect. Um, my kids, I can tell you, never dressed up as doctors. I don't think I ever dressed up as a doctor. As I don't think either. I have either. Yeah. <laughs> so what about you guys? Well, Any I actually, plans? I have to tell a funny story about Needy. Remember first year oh, when gosh. you when you dressed up as Arthur? Have you seen the character Arthur? Oh, yes. With yeah. the yellow sweater and the round glasses? Yeah. Everyone yeah. thought she was Harry Potter for the whole... Yeah, the entire time. I even like did my hair in a way to like make the ears look like, like buns or whatever. And... Brooks walks in. He's like, I love your Harry Potter costume. And I was like, it's not Harry Potter. You should. I would have just gone with it. I mean, I Honestly, that's to... the first thing that came to my mind. I wasn't thinking the hard part. It was, well, he was wearing a yellow shirt and I had the glasses on and everything. It's okay, I guess. It's fine. I still continue the theme of Arthur characters for every year. For Oh, really? So yes. what's this year? Um, I don't know what I'll do for this year. I... I haven't thought that far, which Halloween's in a couple weeks, so we'll see. Maybe uh, DW from Arthur. That one's kind of easy to do, just to wear a dress. dress. Yeah. yeah. I was Muffy, Muffy Crosswire last year. Again, that one was pretty easy. Just put my hair in pigtails and put it on a purple dress. So Very Arthur-centric. Very Arthur- I think I just yeah, want that think- continuing theme. And now that I found out that Arthur's ending after what? like 30 seasons, wow. I feel like I really need to honor it this year. <laughs> do you not have cable as a kid? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anyone who grew up watching like Dragon Tales, Arthur, you know, they they didn't have cable at their home. And so that's why they love those shows. Because you all got the PBS. Yeah. Yeah. The only free channel. (laughs) I don't know what I would do this year, though. Nothing's really coming to my mind. I mean, you could do some like nerdy med school idea. Like you could dress up as one of the sketchy characters, like the chefs and the. Yeah, like the cartoon. I was thinking, you know, like the Dermatome Man? Oh, wait, I gotta hear about this. Have you seen the Dermatome Man? I have not. Okay, I'll show you a picture of it. It's like, like, you know, the nerves in your head, like certain parts of the brain correspond to different parts of the body. Mm -hmm. So like certain parts of the brain are overrepresented by like your face and stuff. Oh, it's not the Dermatome. You mean the... Homun- uh, the homunculus. Oh, homunculus. Okay, okay. A dermatome. I'm going okay. to cut this part out. We, we may need to discuss your education a little bit further. Dermatomes take that thin sliver yeah, of skin okay. off. Yeah, the homunculus. I yeah. Think, oh, that... Let, let's cut this part out. This part. <laughs> no, we're not cutting this part okay. out. Yeah, the homunculus. Yeah, that guy with the big head. And the, the big head, big lips. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Big hand. hands. No, oh. actually, they have big hands. Oh, they have big hands. They have big hands, and they have smaller feet, but little tiny legs. Legs oh. and little tiny arms. Clearly, neither of us have done our neural rotation. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since w- step one. <laughs> just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm going to go door to door this year, though, because, you know, COVID, but we'll see. And you're 24. <laughs> Hey, there's no, there's no age limit. There's no law that says I can't go around to every house and ask for know. candy. I don't know if there's a law or not, but I feel like if I went around my parents' neighborhood. Okay, Dr. Corntager, like, if I showed up to your house asking for candy, would you give me some? Oh, abs- absolutely. But I think you need, <laughs> okay. I think you need like the whole body. You'd, you'd have to do a good costume. Okay, so I'd have there's, to make like the hands really big. And Yeah, okay. there's nothing worse than, you know, 
you've been giving out candy since like six six o'clock mm -hmm. and then you know the lights all go off mm -hmm. and then at nine o'clock somebody's banging on the door and you see it's the 15 you know, year old the 15 in the sweatshirt, year old in the sweatshirt <laughs> with a with a um a pillowcase <laughs> <laughs> they're wearing a chief shirt oh i'm a football player <laughs> don't worry i won't be doing that yeah so just make sure your costumes are really good and then I think it's acceptable no matter what age you are, right? Okay, yeah. yeah, there you exactly. go. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> so I guess a new thing about being third year students is that we got a um have you done a night shift yet, Needy? Nope. No? And I don't mm. well, I have one in a couple of weeks. But. Okay. Well I had my first one and that was kind of a new experience working at night. Have you ever done night shifts before? I'm sure you have in <laughs> oh thirty gosh. years of experience. <laughs> oh my gosh. So um yes. Thousands of night shifts. <laughs> wow! Um, although most of the time, as a, as a surgery resident, as a surgeon, you, there's no shift part, right? Mm -hmm. So you start, you stay up all night, you do the next day, mm -hmm. and then you hope that you can go back. You know, it's funny. Bring this back to relationships. Uh -huh. So we'll go sort of full circle here. Tell you guys an interesting story. You asked, what was it like years ago? So when I did my neurosurgery rotation, which was my first rotation as a resident, mm -hmm. so in Canada at that point, it was after you'd done an internship, so it was equivalent of a PGY-2. And I was at a hospital where there were two neurosurgeons and they didn't talk to each other. That was a great experience. And they had 30, we averaged 30 inpatients. Wow. And they, were really working hard to make sure that this particular hospital didn't lose its neurosurgery mm -hmm. um, because there was a lot of talk at that time of of bringing everybody into the same place so they wanted to demonstrate that they were like crazy crazy busy and so um, i was the only resident on the service and i was on for three months one Every couple of weeks, there would be a medical student, but that was it. There was nobody else. And wow. it was, um, the call schedule was really simple. They told me when I started on the service, they said, you're on call. And that was it. You were on call for three months. And it was very unusual to not um, be up at least half, if not all night. So you would just grab sleep, you know, when you could. I would fall asleep, like, in the corner of the ward, in between cases and things like that. Well, I was in, in a long-distance relationship at that time with a, a young lady from... I was in Toronto, and she was in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and I learned an important lesson during that time, because when I going through that rotation um i was like there's no way you know i'm just starting my residency this is what it's going to be like there is no way that i can you know keep this going and i ended up breaking up with her for absolutely no good reason simply because i couldn't see like any possibility um, of making it work and so what i learned from that is never make any big life decisions <laughs> when you are chronically sleep deprived. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if you're going to make decisions 
uh, about relationships um, or having relationships, mm -hmm. I've learned what I've sort of learned and what I tell people now, and I tell this to our residents, I actually tell it to a lot of the students when they're talking about, you know, what specialty should I think about going into, say, you need to do what my wife told us to do, told me to do um, when we got really serious before we got married. We were out for dinner and she, you know, we're just sort of like a light conversation. And then she turns to me and she says, okay, it's time for us to have the talk. And I was like, uh-oh, oh, no. <laughs> what's this? So it's time to have the talk. Well, in her mind, the talk was pros and cons and deal breakers. And so we went through, you know, pros and cons of our relationship and then deal breakers. And um, she was pretty clear that if afterwards, she didn't tell me this beforehand, and she didn't tell me what the deal breakers were at the time, mm -hmm. but she was pretty clear afterwards that if I had answered incorrectly one of the deal breakers, mm -hmm. that's it. But you didn't know what they were. I didn't know what they were. Wow. Yeah, because then she figured that, you know, I might uh, just give her the answer that I thought she wanted. Right. Did you ever figure out what they were? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and actually, the biggest deal breaker for her, because we were both older when we got married, uh -huh. the big deal breaker for her is, do you want kids? Oh, wow. Would you yeah. be, you know, would you be interested in having kids? So that was an easy one because it's exactly what I wanted. But the age that we were both at, I could have, e you know, you could easily see somebody saying, um, well, you know, we're old. It means that the kids, by the time they're in high school, will be this. and Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's like a really important thing with, in med school, in residency, in life, is, it, you know, for a successful relationship, think about what are those things, you know, what are the pros and cons, but then really what are the deal breakers? Because the biggest mistake that I made during residency and with dating um, was really things where um, I would expect something to change, right? So if you know somebody and something is really important to you, um, if they're not doing it or they're not, it's not in their character, mm -hmm. it ain't never going to change. Wow. And expecting that somebody's going to change to make a relationship work, I'm not convinced that that is, on average, a successful approach. Wow, we've explored med school scaries and relationship scaries. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the scariest thing in a relationship for you guys now? For oh. me, go ahead. No, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's like, like time, you know? Because I think the best, what I've always seen is that either people are already married or in pretty serious relationships before they go into residency, or they get married after residency and kind of figure all that stuff out then. But, you know, I'm kind of thinking about that period in the middle where you're going to be working so many hours and, you know, what's going to happen so, so is your thought that once you get through residency, you're over the hump and it's all yeah, I'm going to be 32. My prime is long gone. 
hey, wait a second. <laughs> I'm double that. Don't think don't talk that way. <laughs> um, Needy, what about you? I, uh, I guess like just scaries for me is just things like not like not the not changing really is. I want to be able to if I've studied and worked this hard to get a career. I don't want someone to have to make me want to give that up for. I'm not saying things are like family are less important because I obviously family is really important to me, but like I don't want to have to sacrifice like all the time and effort that I've made to get to hit this point for something else, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes it makes complete sense. And, you know, the when you put all the effort in and and I don't think it's easy at times to sort of think that it should just be it's like an either or. You know, I think as with a lot of things, it's a, you know, you're trying to find the balance. And I I try to think that way a lot. You know, what is the balance? Things don't always work. Um, But you have to talk. And and it's talking. I'll give you a, here's a perfect example of where, you know, there's no perfect answer. So we've got, our older son is in a hockey tournament in Oklahoma City. Uh, the weekend mm-hmm. of Halloween, and our younger son is got football playoffs and possibly a hockey game in Kansas City. I'm going to be in Atlanta. My wife is feeling horribly inadequate for the fact that one of our children is not going to have a parent yeah. Yeah. at their game. And... Um, I, and and it's it's hard, right? You you've got to, but these are things that we've all you know we've talked about and try to work through, but you know still in a relationship, even one that's been going on a long time, you've got to figure out how how do you work through that stuff, yeah. you know, as as a couple. Um, I know some people who, you know, have gone through residencies. Um, and I can think of one couple where the husband um, is part-time and the wife is full-time and he's the one who, you know, if something happens with the kids, he's the one who can take off and and deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Others where people are, you know, they embrace a more traditional kind of role, but I think like in, in our case, um, we both worked, but we had an we had an understanding that you know we knew that more of the child rearing was going to be on my wife's back as opposed to mine. But those are things that we talked about, and I think that's that's sort of the key is you got to talk about it because if you put yourself in a position where somebody is trying to tell you, well, Nita, you have to stay home and. You know, or you can only work this much, and that's not the way you feel about it. Then that's a pretty good recipe for disaster. And that's, I think, that's like always been my biggest fear is that recipe for disaster, which I'm fine with being single for right now, for that fact. So we'll see what we'll see what the future shows. When you least expect it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> can I ask a question about timing? Yes. So I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this, but um, recently there's been some rumors that the number of residency applications has shot up by like 30 or 40% in the last year or two. 
Have you heard anything about that? Does that sound true? And are you even allowed to talk about that? Oh, you can talk about I can talk about anything because okay. I've been around long enough. I'm not really worried about getting fired. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you look at the total number of individuals uh-huh. who are looking for residency positions. Yeah. Right. Because it's you, you obviously you need to get a residency position almost all the time before you're going to be able to work as a physician. So if you look at the total number of people who are applying, there are, you know, medical schools have increased. The, there has been a recent increase in the number of residency slots that the government is paying for mm-hmm. in the country. Um, but there is, and if you look at the number of people from outside this country who want to train here, you know, there's just, there's more people who want those residency slots than there are residents. Right. Or there, then there are, there are slots. So more students than there are slots. Has it changed dramatically over the past year? No. Really? It's okay. what you are seeing, though, because we've got, um, because we've taken out some of the barriers for interviews by doing things virtual. Yeah. One of the things that we are seeing is that there are more people applying to probably multiple programs than would have otherwise. And it creates a challenging conundrum because you have, you know, one of the things I believe is that um, what makes a successful resident and a successful physician is not necessary. You know, it academic performance is important, you know, but everybody gets into med school is smart. Yeah. So, you know, really it's the social-emotional intelligence and these other sort of soft skills. Um, but when, you, when programs are looking at the residency applications, you can sort of you break them up into, into groups. And that's why I think the thing that you may be referring to is that we're starting to, you know, we've seen more applications. Like normally for our program, we would have got... 220 applications, um, but this year we're, I don't know, 310 or something. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, some of those are people who, you know, it's outside countries are, you know, mm-hmm. we're seeing a few more applications there. And then you're seeing applications from people who are like, well, you know, I'll just throw it out there. Maybe, you know, if I get it, great. If I don't, That's, I haven't lost anything. Right. But then we're also seeing the people who are really good are getting a huge number of interviews. And because they, um, they're they not traveling. So when you were going for in-person interviews, you know, you said, okay, it's going to take me a day to get there. And then I'm there for this. And then it takes me a day to get back. And it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you are more limited. Now, the virtual interviews are great because... It helps level the playing field. People who aren't, you know, financially secure, it's going to be, you know, it's easier for them. It's not adding to everyone's debt. But what it does do is if somebody is, has got options to interview to program, one program on Friday, one on Saturday, one on Sunday, they can do all those interviews. Yeah. Yeah. And so this certain groups are sucking up a lot of those slots and there's been talk about you know what do we do about that 
and you know i've i've heard people say well you know people shouldn't take more than x number of interviews because you don't really need to yeah when things are such high stakes people are afraid you know not to so mm-hmm. you know if you think well you know 90% of people of the time if you have more than 10 interviews you know you're going to match but you know that still means 10% won't so people are scared to do that there's also um, it's also fascinating the things when I look at the applicants that we're getting there's a students are doing so much it feels like to me they're doing so much more than we used to I interviewed I looked at three application or a bunch of applications yesterday and I sent a note back to our program coordinator and and program directors saying I'm not sure if these people are applying to our plastic surgery program or if they should be put up for the Nobel Prize. Wow. Yeah. Like it was, it, you know, it's incredible to see what people are doing. But it's it's also like, wow, you know, how how are people doing that? So, you know, to answer the question, yes, there, there are probably more people applying to individual, you know, programs. Overall, the pool is probably not. It's much, probably the same It's probably, size. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it feels like it's it's a lot more. Wow. Okay. Yeah, thanks for sharing about that. <laughs> I feel like everyone's just speculating so much about... Everyone thinks like maybe it's COVID or maybe because of the virtual interviews, but it sounds like it's a lot of the virtual interview aspect that's really driving up the numbers. Yeah. I think for individual programs, um, and you know, that's the thing that we always need to remember, and it... And for any of the students, you know, go to the ACGME website, look up, you know, the data from the last match and see, you know, what did it look like? You know, what were the publications that people had? What were the number of, on average, interviews that people went to and and things like that? Because, you know, talking about fear, that's got to be one of the most terrifying times is just waiting for okay am I going to get you know what interviews I'm going to get where am I going to get them you know how's it all going to play out it's kind of natural that it goes in that direction yeah it's hard to sort of figure out um, what you know is changing Um, but there's no question the you know currently the group of students that I'm interacting with and you know the ones that I'm seeing are applying there's just like a you know it's a really great quality mm-hmm. you know the it's just a tremendous quality and and I think that you know that's a great thing because at this time in the world we're going to need like some really good smart people to fix everything that you know our generation has screwed up and so it, it gives me some encouragement when I see, you know, what kinds of people are willing to devote themselves and their time to medicine and making the world better. You know, one of the things that I see a ton of these days, which is very encouraging, is people who are volunteering their time for, you know, whether it's free clinics or doing, you know, international work or doing you know projects just to try to you know help with 
you know, underserved minority groups and trying to encourage people who've traditionally been shut out of medical school, um, encouraging them and giving them sort of the, the tools to be able to get in and, and be successful. So overall, thanks for talking with us, Dr. Quarantager. Um, if you all want to hear more about um, other things we've talked about, we talked a little bit about relationships today. Our first episode of MD Wannabes was actually about relationships too. So if you want to check those out, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, and we're on Anchor.fm. Also, we have an Instagram and a Twitter, which are run by Needy, and those are at MD Wannabes. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.